Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Manifesting Brilliance podcast. I'm your host, Jerome M. Hoff, and I am pleased and honored to welcome you to our conversation today. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I record from my home in Palm Springs, California, and that means that you are likely to hear the sounds of my neighborhood in the background. Perhaps you'll hear one of my dogs barking. Uh, it's just the, the fact of the matter is it's a very low-tech grassroots operation, but what I love is that I'm able to share some really valuable information, some inspiration. And today I'm thrilled because a new friend that's coming to my life, Laura Fenimore, is here to join us. And in a moment, I'll have her introduce herself and tell us more about her. Uh, But before we get started, as always, I'd love just to take a moment to ground ourselves. So if it's safe for you to do so, in other words, you're not operating a vehicle, uh, operating heavy machinery, or uh, raising a barn, uh, please close your eyes. And put your right hand over your heart and your left hand over your right hand. And together we'll just take a very deep breath in. And as we exhale, just release anything that might be troubling you, any anxiety, any fear. And one more deep breath in. And on the exhale, just allow yourself to become present in this moment. This moment is the time with our linear time, our time and space intersects with God's eternal time. And I'd like to just share these words from a book uh, that I love by Macrina Viterfer called Seasons of Your Heart. My bare feet walk the earth reverently, for everything keeps crying, take off your shoes, the ground you stand on is holy. The ground of your being is holy. When the wind sings through the pines like a breath of God, awakening you to a sacred present, calling your soul to new insights, take off your shoes. When the sun rises above your rooftop, coloring your world with dawn, be receptive to this awesome beauty. Put on your garment of adoration, take off your shoes. When the red maple drops in, its last leaf of summer, wearing its burning brush robes no more. Read between its barren branches and take off your shoes. When sorrow presses close to your heart, begging you to put your trust in God alone, filling you with a quiet knowing that God's hand is not too short to heal you, take off your shoes. When a new person comes into your life like a mystery about to unfold, and you find yourself marveling over the frailty and splendor of every human being, take off your shoes. When during the wee hours of the night, you drive slowly into the new day and the morning's fog, like angel wings, hovers mysteriously above you, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes of distraction. Take off your shoes of ignorance and blindness. Take off your shoes of hurry and worry. Take off anything that prevents you from being a child of wonder. Take off your shoes. The ground you stand on is holy. The ground you are is holy. Mm. (sighs) I love that. And I think it's really appropriate for the conversation that I'm expecting uh, that I'm going to be having today with Laura. Of course, Holy Spirit moves through us and we never really know where things are going to go, but it's always perfect. And 
kind uh, beautiful. So without further ado, I would love uh, to introduce you all to Laura Fenimore and just tell you a little bit about how I met Laura. So as I've shared um, on the podcast many times, I'm a student of A Course in Miracles. And a few months ago, I was invited by the Foundation for Inner Peace, which is the scribe authorized publisher of the course, to come and work with them as a volunteer. And through that uh, volunteer work, I have met Laura, who is the executive uh, development officer for the organization. And it was serendipitous and beautiful. And in a very short time, I realized that Laura was a kindred spirit. And uh, so and she mentioned that she'd written a book. And uh, I ordered the book and read it from cover to cover in one day. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that, but, uh, I would love for, uh, Laura, uh, why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and, and, uh, what you do. Hi everyone. Jerome, thank you so much for that beautiful, beautiful poem and introduction. Uh, That was really great. You know, it's so funny when I was listening to it, all I could think about is that we are on holy ground and we are holy beings, and it sort of takes all the story and just throws it away. <laughs> like, I'm like, there's nothing to say after that. There's like nothing to say. Because it's just really Yeah, yeah. it is, yeah. It's yeah. amazing. But I will, I will share a little sure. bit in service in service of somebody else. Perhaps there's somebody that's listening to this that's feeling a little bit lost or a little bit hopeless. As I was reading somebody on from somebody that has been in my classes in the past this morning, she said, but I'm still trying to figure out why I can't love myself. And I said, well, we make up all kinds of stories about why we can't love ourselves. And we actually, if we're asking the question, then we care enough to want to love ourselves. So that's movement. And so if you're listening to this, you care about yourself enough to want to learn something. Because if you're listening to this, then you must have had some little inkling that Jerome has something powerful to share with you and his um, his guests. So for me, you know, when I was 24 years old, I'm going to be 58 next month. When I was 24 years old, I was done. I had like said, you know what, this is, this is just too hard. And I'm just going to take you back a little bit. I, I'm the youngest of eight children. I'm from Long Island, New York. And um, I came into this world in an environment that was toxic. Um, I was told from the time that I could hear that I was damaged goods because my father, who was an unmedicated, undiagnosed, mentally ill person who had been abused, violently abused himself, had had no consciousness and awareness you know, met my mom, beat her up. She married him still, forced her into eight children. And so as difficult as my beginning was, I always say that if I hadn't had that childhood, I wouldn't be here. And I'm really glad I'm here today. But at 24, between, you know, 
11 years of abuse and like really bad child abuse, witnessing my brothers and sisters going to the hospital on a weekly basis, being exposed to trauma and drama, uh, and then going into foster care and having really wicked, wicked experiences in foster care and being pulled away from my seven other siblings and, you know, spending time in a hospital, like when my father came, forced me into seeing him and I was the courts visit, forced me to visit him when I was a teen and ending up in the hospital for, you know, abuse and being beat up and so it was it was there was a lot of trauma and drama and my way of dealing with all of it was I started eating right out of the womb I became a compulsive eater and then as soon as I could get my hands on alcohol and cigarettes and drugs I was in all in it was just a way for me to you know just cover up the pain and cuz it was so dramatic and traumatic and so you know foster home after foster home, being pulled from my family, having that trauma that I couldn't process, losing a brother who I was very, very close to, who died at 26 and I was 11. Um, that All that happened in that year. So by the time I was 24, I mean, a lot happened. I went into foster care and then at 18 years old, I was a drunk and I said, I'm moving to California and I thought that California was going to be the holy land for me. Well, it was, except I didn't, took me years to find that. So I got here and I got really a lot worse instead of it being this holy ground. It was much more damage. I got in with the wrong crowd, started, you know, drugs, alcohol. It was bad. It was really bad. And so, you know, on top of all of that, I knew that I was gay from the time I was and basically five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I met somebody when I came to California and we just fell madly in love. But the fear, the fear of letting anyone know was so giant that I had to hide it. So on top of hiding everything else, I was hiding that and trying to act as if it wasn't true so then I identified as bisexual when that wasn't really true for me. And anyway, it was just a lot of hiding, a lot of pain, and a lot of abuse. Mm-hmm. So at 24, I was like, okay, I'm done. And fortunately, there was a woman that I was working in a bar, and I was working at a lesbian bar in San Francisco. And there was a woman that came into my life, and she and I fell madly in love. She lived in Georgia and I lived in San Francisco and we, she saw how damn, like, like how much pain I was in and how much, and people had told me for so long, you know, you're such a pretty girl if you could only lose weight and you're such a pretty girl if you only wouldn't, you know, abuse yourself. You know, people saw there were some things about me that like, even though I tried very much so to show up in a, as a very productive member of society, there was a lot of pain there that people saw. And Stephanie, this person in my life saw a lot of pain. And she said, I think that you might want to consider 12 step programs. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't have a problem. But I did have a problem and I knew I had a problem. And and so I was talking about suicide and 
like figuring out how I was going to do it and in denial. And also, so what happened is, is she basically said to me, you're lovable. And people had told me that, you know, for 24 years, but I couldn't believe it. There was something about her that made me believe it. And I call her my lifesaver. Like literally she was my lifesaver. And at that point, you know, when you're 24, you think, you know, everything, but you knew nothing. But I was so cocky about my father. I really hated him so much. And I, I, I couldn't forgive him and I couldn't forgive what had happened, but I believe that if I took my life, then my father would really win. So it was my cocky, you know, just my cockiness that kept me alive too. So between that woman who was kind of an angel in my path and my believing that my father would win if I killed myself, that I was able to get myself into some help. And, you know, here I am 30 something years later, you know, I really with a life beyond my wildest dreams. I have a great life today. And, but this road, this journey has been a journey. And when I signed up to not take my life, I signed up to make my life all about consciousness. And that's what I've been doing for the past 30 something years, just learning how to first mother myself and take care of myself and physically, emotionally, spiritually. So I have been on this path of reclamation for 30 something years. And I don't say, I don't think that I'll ever like, you know, arrive because as far as I'm concerned, it's just this magical journey of discovery. And even though, you know, there are bad days and bad moments and challenging things. I am lucky, very lucky that I woke up, I reclaimed my life and that I've been used to serve and help and love. And that's just, I don't take that for granted. Yeah. Um, So many things uh, come to mind as you share your story. And the first thing I want to say is how fortunate is this world? No. That you were able to reclaim your your light and um, which never had really dimmed, mm-hmm. you know, because that part of us can never, ever really totally be dimmed. Mm-hmm. Um, we just think it is, mm-hmm. you know, as the Course in Miracles often says, you know, we think we have many problems, but our only problem really is our belief that we can be separate from God. Mm-hmm. And we know we cannot, you know, once we discover that. Mm-hmm. and and how fortunate you are that uh, this angel came into your life and you had people who showed you the way and you were willing. So there are a number of things. So your book is called Skinny Fat Perfect. And as I mentioned, I've read it twice now. The first day I read it, I read it from cover to cover. And then I thought, oh, I need to read it again. So the second time I read it, I actually went through and highlighted and took notes and the margins. And and um, so then after I read it the second time, I I, I what are the questions I always ask myself as a reader is what is this a book about? Right. Mm-hmm. And on, on the, the surface, it seems like it's a book about releasing weight. And I love that you use the word releasing weight rather than weight loss, you know, yeah. because 
if I lose weight, I certainly don't want to find it again. Um, but it's also this releasing weight is more permanent. But the book isn't, re- it's not really about that. The book is about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but here was my list of things. It's really about healing your inner child. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about that. Learning to love yourself. Mm-hmm. It's about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It's about connecting with the divine and stepping into your own power and about living as a warrior. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I picked up. And the weight release piece is in there. But what I, what was overwhelmingly powerful, powerful for me both times was this notion that if we can just learn to love ourselves mm-hmm. and if we can learn to connect with the divine within us, mm-hmm. then the things that we find challenging, they don't melt away, but the way is paved for us to make those changes, to transform those things. And you mentioned in a couple times in the book that when you went to Overeaters Anonymous, that they, the, the, the key uh, concept was just being willing, mm-hmm. just being willing to make the change. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to do it right away. You didn't have to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. You just had to be willing. And as the Course of Miracles says, the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, just the smallest invitation, just mm-hmm. our smallest willingness, the Holy Spirit comes rushing in. Mm-hmm. And that's such a, a powerful um, piece of what happened with you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And it's just, it's beautiful. It spoke to me in so many ways uh, because I have, I've, I'm challenged by issues with weight, you know? I'm carrying around 50 pounds that I don't want to carry around. Mm-hmm. And when I read the book the first time, Laura, it was the first time I realized that I need my body. Mm-hmm. Not that I didn't know that, but it really was profound to me because I, I see myself as somebody who's very connected to spirit, a little too intellectual and cerebral. cerebral. I don't necessarily really inhabit my body mm-hmm. the way I need to. And it was like God slapped me across the face and said, okay, Jerome, mm-hmm. you need this vessel mm-hmm. to do the work you're continuing to do. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I'm at the point in my life when having some health challenges, mm-hmm. borderline diabetic, my knees hurt, mm-hmm. and releasing the weight will make all of those things a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about your your spiritual path. How, so you were doing... Um, Readers Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, and then something happened where there had to have been a conversion of your heart in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, What was that like for you? I think before I found the Course in Miracles, uh, Course in Miracles, um, my friend Paul took me to an inner child workshop, and it was a week long inner child workshop up in Oregon, and I was turning twenty five, so I was newly sober and. Everybody in the group was at least maybe, maybe Paul was close to age and me. He was maybe 30 something, but he was, um, I talk about him in the book. He's the one yeah. who actually faced me, faced, <laughs> forced me into looking at being, calling, looking at my life as a victim 
And so as challenging as that moment with him was, you have to read the book in order to get that story. (laughs) Paul is a dear, dear, dear friend of mine who is a gay man and, and, um, just my best friend from college's brother. And he took me to this inner child workshop and we just I, I talk about showing up in a place that I felt like a fish out of water because it was um, everybody was 50 plus And it was literally creating your family of origin over a course of a week. So by the end of the week, you are transformed. I mean, it was such a gift. It was such a gift to be in my mid twenties with all of these grownups who were so, you know, like so committed to loving their inner children and creating a new family of origin. And, and again, like they said to me, don't wait to be our age. I mean, so many people had said that to me that we're at 50 plus, like you're going to have this great process from 20 to 50, but don't, or 25 to 50. But if you can like speed it up a little bit and not suffer the way that we suffered all those years. And so that was, that in itself was a big gift. I remember my friend, another friend of mine saying that to me, like, don't wait to 50 to, you know, and again, everybody has their path and their process. So it's not like time is not even real and, in 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 truth, right. but you know, so like, I don't want anyone out there listening to feel bad about their timing or I didn't get, I didn't wake up till I was 60 or 70. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. What matters is for me, I had that gift at 25 of going to this inner child workshop. You know, I believed in God from the time I was, a, you know, I could say the word and I was a, went to Catholic church every week and my father beat his kids up. So I had no understanding of I I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't make sense of going to catechism and loving going to church and my father beating us up. It didn't make sense. It's like, who could this be? But yet, you know, I, I kissed my God every night. I was prayed like on my knees every day. I just loved God. I just love the concept, but it didn't make sense. So what, made sense as I got into 12-step programs is the concept of a higher power. Okay. I get that. That's like God for me, like something that you can't see, touch, taste, but it's there. It's a presence that's way bigger than any mind could ever imagine. That's there to support you, hold you, help you, teach you. So that made sense. But no matter how much that made sense, you know, psychologically, mentally, and emotionally, I could not use the 12 steps to forgive what had happened. I still felt like a victim. Like Paul, you know, called me out, which was really helpful. But I I was like, I'm never going to forgive my father. I'm never going to forgive my mother. And there's no way out of it. So that's when the 12, that's when Course in Miracles came along. And it, it showed me mm-hmm. that the only way through is forgiveness. And I just believed that forgiveness was all about forgetting and are making the perpetrator right or all those concepts that we make up about what right. means. That's not true. No. So it showed me that, you know, well, first of all, what we think really happened didn't happen. And in, in course world, that is like, you know, this was all a dream and it was, it was a setup 
to show me how I separated from God. And in that, the only way through is to see my father as me, to see my mother as me, to see everybody in that nightmare as me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of a friend I, I recently had a conversation with and his upbringing was not dissimilar to yours. Mm-hmm. He was uh, raised by a single mom who was bipolar and she abused him terribly. And we were talking about the notion of forgiveness and because it's, he's really struggling and I'm struck by the section in your book that's entitled it simply is. Mm-hmm. And he was saying to me, Jerome, why, why did this happen? Why did my mom treat me so badly? What did I do to deserve it? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you didn't deserve it. It happened because your mother was bipolar. Mm-hmm. That's why it happened. Mm-hmm. It simply is that mm-hmm. she was bipolar. You were handy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, God wasn't taking something out on you. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. Yeah. And I think when we can accept that, yeah. that the circumstances of our, of our life just simply are what they are. Yeah. And move out of the notion that that defines us in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, then I think it's easier to forgive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in terms um, of my relationship with my, um, with my father my father wasn't abusive, but he seemed really distant. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, you know, a gay man. And I often believed that um, part of the reason I was gay was because my father and I didn't have this great relationship. Like if my dad had played baseball with me or whatever. Um, and one of the things I realized, I was reading a book called um, Virtually Normal. And just in the preface, um, the author's name escapes me. But anyway, he talks about the fact that gay boys often sense that they're different Mm -hmm. and they push the father away. Mm. So I remember reading this and just weeping because I realized, oh my goodness, it wasn't what my dad did. It was what I had done. Mm -hmm. And, and I got to the point where I could just sort of accept my dad for who he was. Mm -hmm. Um, Not the father I would have chosen. Initially, but realizing later, and it was after he passed away, realizing all of the ways he demonstrated love to me that I missed because I was so blinded by what I had expected. Like, I remember distinctly graduating from college and walking across the stage and my father meeting me in the aisle and shaking my hand. Mm-hmm. You know, what a profound moment. He wasn't huggy. He didn't tell me he loved me. Yeah. But he was at every concert. He was at everything I did. Right. Yeah. And just, and realizing that it was for me to change how I saw him and not for him to be anything different than he was because he could not be any different. He, you know, and I think you mentioned a moment ago that your father was abused and, you know, and that doesn't make it right. No. It doesn't make any of it right, but it, it gives you a little, a level of understanding that, Wow. Every, I love, um, uh, well, I think his last name is William uh, Miller, Miller. I think I don't, I can't remember his name. I'll have to put it in the podcast notes, but he, this great quote about, um, 
have compassion for everyone you meet. Mm-hmm. And then it says, no, but you don't know what, um, what battles are going down, mm-hmm. going on down there where soul meets bone. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't know what yeah. someone else is going through. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it doesn't ex- like, you know, there were times when my father, um, said harsh things to me, you know, like, Oh, I think there's something wrong with you. You're such a pansy, you know? Um, yeah. And he didn't know. He didn't know any better. Yeah. He just didn't know any better. Yeah. Um, and they were hurtful and I carried them around for a long time. Yeah. Um, until, you know, I had that, that moment of awareness. Um, and it's not, you know, my childhood was not as horrific as yours. Mm-hmm. But what I love about the Course in Miracles is it talks about, you know, uh, there's the order of difficulty in miracles. Yeah. And there's sort of in the same way that, you know, one sin or one transgression isn't worse than another. They're all corrected in the same way. They're all corrected when we remove the blinders from our eyes and can see as God sees. Yeah. And see everyone as an innocent child of God. And um, yeah. Absolutely. And, and what I want to say is that, that there's nothing wrong with you for moving away from your dad and not making you wrong. The ego wants to make us wrong. Like, why did I push him away? Why did I, if that were true, if that were true, like the book suggested that, but as course students, I think we know that every action that we take in body form is out of fear or love. So you were afraid of your dad. Right. Oh, yeah. It's like if you would have been vulnerable or like what would have happened? I mean, I saw my brother who was gay, my brother closest to me, my brother Michael, who's, you know, two years older than me. My father tortured him because he knew he was gay, too. Right. Right. And it was like it was he called him, you know, a a faggot and all that kind of stuff. And it was yeah. horrible for my brother. I was terrified to spend any time alone with my dad. Cause I knew he would know. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when I finally came out to him, it opened the door for a different kind of relationship because we were no longer hiding from one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could be who I was and we would joke about it. Yeah. One time we were camping and I, uh, we were going to go have breakfast and I said, Oh, I need to take a shower. And he said, Oh, don't take forever down there. So I go down to take the shower. And when I come back, you know, it's like longer than the 30 minutes I said I was going to be gone. And he's like, you know, I, he said, you're worse than a girl. And I said, honey, I said, funny, that never, that never tipped you off before dad. And we just mm-hmm. had a little chuckle, you know, like, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So I think, um, the the power of forgiveness and the power of the healing that comes from that from being able to mm-hmm. um, to do it and I also think that forgiveness happens on its own timeline right yeah. it's it sounds to me you know I know you mentioned in your book that you were able to forgive your father um, after he passed and um, and you know it's actually I, before before that i mean it was a process it's still right. the process like i always think of forgiveness as it's sort of like like i said like 
There's no arriving. We have this illusion in this culture that we are going to like right. something is going to happen and we're not going to have problems anymore. Like all my problems are going to go away. That's just part of the illusion. That's not true for most human beings. We still will have challenges. And I see all challenges as opportunities. And I certainly see my childhood as one big giant opportunity. And your friend that you were describing that is like, how could this have happened with my mom, my single mom? And and you're like, well, she was bipolar. And, but it, it's like, it's challenging for people to see that darkness as an opportunity. But that's really in my spiritual, that is what we are spiritually invited to do, to see it as an opportunity, not as a curse. And right. most people think of their, you know, my marriage was a curse. My job is a curse. My you know childhood was a curse. It was all a curse. And it's like, no, it's perfect. But, you know, it happened per, like for you and, you know, not everybody is going to see it that way. And certainly, you know, people can think I'm a freak for even suggesting it, but that is how I have lived my life. Now seeing everything, even the most challenging things as, and doesn't mean that when I am in a crisis that I don't experience it as, but I do know there's a way through it. That is when I'm on the other side, I will learn the opportunity in it. Absolutely. And I'm reminded, I was listening to Neil Donald Walsh um, doing a webinar one time and he talked about, he gave us this prayer because he talks about how the circumstances of of your life are set up perfectly for you to understand who you are. And when we're challenged, it might be the perfect opportunity for us to step into our power. Yeah. And so he, he, I wrote this prayer and I actually adapted it a little bit because I wanted to include some course uh, language. So, but the prayer is, thank you, O God, for this one more chance to announce and to declare, to express and to fulfill, to become and to demonstrate who I really am. Thank you for this divine invitation to fully claim and stand in my own power, in my oneness with you, O God. There is nothing my holiness cannot do. Amen. Love that. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the circumstance, you know, that my friend is in, you know, we talked a little bit about you have to stop living in the story, mm-hmm. you know, about what this meant, you know, like, what did it mean for him to have this bipolar mom who beat him up? What does that mean? I said, you're living through this, the, you're seeing everything through this filter of that means there was something wrong with you. There was nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Your mom was bipolar. That's all it was. Yeah. You were handy. Yeah. And that doesn't make it be great it was horrible it was horrific but are you going to continue to carry the story with you and live through that story yeah because when you're living through the story what happens you know it's when you be then you you turn to the addictions right and reading your book maybe made me have to stand back and say okay what is it about me why have i put on this weight what's the story i'm telling myself why am i self-soothing with food mm-hmm. you know and and sometimes it's not absolutely clear. I mean, I had to do some real soul searching, lots of journaling to figure it out for myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I've entirely figured it out yet, but I'm in that process of yeah. like looking at, you know, as a gay man where, you know, everything is so much about how you look and, you know. Um, 
every group in this culture can say that. It's yeah. true that there is a tribe mentality that exists in every culture and subculture that we have this mental pact. So I've heard that from my brother. You're like, you don't understand. Like Mm -hmm. gay men all look, it's a certain, I get that. I also know that we're bigger than that. Like, so there's that. And then there's our voice. And then there's the voice of the tribe. But really what I want to talk about is, you know, I love how you described my book about it's comes in the, in the, um, the invitation is about weight release because it's true that I did release a hundred pounds between 24 and 25 and have kept it off all these years. Um, and, and there's no, for me, there's no going back. And it's not because I think that there's anything wrong with being overweight or I, I, I don't have, um, an ism about that. There's no fatism in my body. It's true that when I see people in wheelchairs because of their obesity, I have compassion and love for them, but I don't reject people because of their weight. And I just see them as love the way that I see me as love. I mean, we're all one. So, so that is true. What I do know though, having done this coaching work for 20 years is that people suffer because of their weight. A oh, yeah. Lot. Yeah. A lot. And I suffered because of my weight a lot. So that is a part of suffering that I don't see needing to happen in my life because I've changed my relationship with food. And quite frankly, while food used to be my source of comfort and love and all of that, it really isn't. It doesn't mean that I don't enjoy it anymore. I do enjoy it. But that is not the thing that calls me for like, I don't need it for relaxation and comfort, but we do live in a culture. Like I see it from an outsider perspective, looking out, going the mixed messages, the paradoxes every day, all the time. I totally get it. Like go on this diet and eat this recipe, go on this diet, make this recipe. It is such a you know, cluster, you know what it is just, yeah, we're constantly fed different messages. So we have to be bigger than the messages. That's what I mean about there's the paradox in this culture is any, you know, it's just, it's completely like we know from the course, it's like, you know, we live in this paradigm of fat and thin and rich and, and, and poor. And, and it's like, whoever I am in the moment is not okay, or it is okay, depending on where you fit on that ridiculous paradigm. So what I know for sure is that we come out of the womb and we cry and then we want food. We need food. Food is our source of love right out of the womb. So when people that are compulsive eaters and or hate their bodies and hate the fact that they're overweight. Like the first thing that I say is that, you know, the story that is common out there in our culture is that, you know, I don't have to drink. I don't have to smoke. I don't have to buy. I don't have to do this. I don't have to, but I do have to eat. And I hate the fact that I have to eat. I wish I didn't have to eat. I wish food didn't exist. And I always say it's disrespectful to our bodies. It's disrespectful to our process as a human form 
to actually wish that you reject a part of us that is essential. It is essential. I mean, there are breatharians. There are a subculture of people that don't really eat. And as we age, we need to eat less because we're moving less. But that doesn't mean that we still don't need some sort of food. So what I know is that within um, the context of we do need food, we do want to learn how to be with it in a way. And I think it's important that we look at from a very, very primary, primary part of our life, which is, I was an early childhood development major. So uh, five is super important on how, what was our relationship like with food from in those first primary years of our lives? And what was our, our parents' relationship with food? Uh-huh. Did they deprive us? Did they overfeed us? Did they underfeed us? Because that is the essence of what we're carrying as adults, which is, you know, it's never enough. It's too much. It's, and because that was our sustenance and love from a very young age. It was primal. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way. Um, So that's a really great aha moment for me. Just to understand how, how we sort of get in the situation. And, and another thing that came up as you were talking is when I'm working with my coaching clients, I often talk about the words be, do, and have. And I ask uh, my clients to put them in a hierarchy, like which is the most important. And we are told, and you alluded to this in the book, that once we, like you thought, when I get to California, my life will be perfect. Mm-hmm. Or when I lose this weight, because I have believed that too. When I lose this weight, when I release this weight, I will be happy and I will love myself more. But it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Because it's I use the equation B times do equals have. Mm-hmm. So I have to start you saying the book, love one part of yourself. Find one part of your body that you can love. Maybe it's your pinky. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's the work I'm trying to do right now is to when I get into the shower and I take off all my clothes and I'm standing in front of the mirror and I'm saying the body that I don't necessarily like. Mm-hmm. Can I love it? Can I embrace it? Can I be grateful for the things that allows me to do? Mm-hmm. Can I love it for what it does instead of how it looks? How it looks. Mm-hmm. That it was, that's so profound for me because when you start at that essence of who we are and loving who we are, mm-hmm. then they're doing the half fall into place. Then it's easier to make mm-hmm. the right choices. Like after I read the book, I, went on this binge like I'd done all this journaling and was like all the stuff came up for me and then I'm in the my kitchen and I'm making dinner and I and my husband was sleeping so I'm just making dinner for myself because he was not feeling well so I make a box you know two boxes of mac and cheese I mean eat all this carbs Mm -hmm. but while it's cooking I'm downing chips and cookies and drinking soda Mm -hmm. and then I was so sick the next day Mm. and there was the wake-up call for me it was like Jerome it was like Holy Spirit said Jerome what are you doing to yourself mm-hmm. yeah you know you just read this book now it's time love your body learn to love it and um and so then I think when we start there we can start to have the right relationship with food mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um and I love the fact that you said you can't do it alone no you, you need support That's you need just- support yeah but, the, but we also, at some point in our lives, were met with the concept of depre- de- deprivation. 
And when food represents love, Jerome, and we believe that food is our nurturer, it's our comforter, it's our mother, it's our father, it's our lover, it's our everything, it becomes our mighty companion. It's like, if that's the truth, then you want to take it away from me? You want to take it away from me? It's like, no, 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 no. So that moment that little concept comes in, like, um, I need to change my ways. Of course, it's like, I'm ravenous. It's like, don't take it away. It's like the kid that has the the doll that they lose. And it's like, it's devastating. Well, it's it's the same thing with. So maybe that's what I was experiencing. Of course. In that moment, it was like, yeah. I always, I always like to tell the story about when I went to a cleansing place in San Diego, I don't know, 25 years ago with my ex and we got there and it was Christmas day and it was like Christmas day. And I have to go, you know, have an enema and, and I just got into the car and I'm like, okay, before I go in there to like deprive myself for a week, I was like shoving food in my mouth. <laughs> it's like the person who has one last drink before they go into rehab, right? Exactly. You can't get in. It's like, ah, you can't take this away from me. So I was literally, I made myself sick. I was eating so much before I was going to like, what a, what a big F you to the body. Really it is because it's like, it's so nasty to the body for when we, when we binge. Mm -hmm. And now in this culture, remember when, when I was, when I got clean and sober and I released my hundred pounds, we didn't have a binge mentality. Everything that I talked about from back then, this is where I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm hardly an old woman, but I, I, you know, 30 something years ago, there was so much shame. Like people weren't talking about compulsive eating the way we talk about it today. It was like, there was so much more shame attached to being an obese person. It's pretty normal now, mm-hmm. but then like the fact that we talk about binge reading, binge binge eating, binge um, watching television as if it's the norm. Back then, if you were like somebody that was a binger, you were just like, oh my God, a cast off. And now it's just part of our culture. We all talk about binging. And it's like- Binging on Netflix, a Netflix binge, right? Binge watching. Binge watching, but binge eating is just as acceptable. It's just as acceptable. Yeah. Then we see hospitals full and people get sad and, you know, and then we like, there's no consequences for that behavior that we're encouraging. Right. And then saying, why is that? Well, there's, again, as we know from A Course in Miracle, nothing in this world makes sense. Right. No. And I, I was also struck by the fact, you know, talking about food being medicine. Mm-hmm. And how food has been reformulated, right? I mean, finding healthy food today is so difficult. It's so difficult. You know, we have all kinds of um, uh, GMOs and, yeah. you know, and so what is it doing? You know, well, it's, what are not we doing difficult. it's not difficult if you have access to it. I don't have difficulty finding. Right. But you live having, in Marin County, but if you live yeah, in I mean, middle- I don't have difficult, but exactly. But I, I go back to New York a lot. I'm from New York and my mom is somebody I'm still taking care of at 95. I stay in the Bronx and I call it, I call it the, um, there's no, there's no, there's no healthy food there. There's it's just a no desert. Food. It's a desert, right? Yeah. I mean, you it's, can't get. It's a complete food desert. 
complete. Yeah. It's like you have to go out of your way to find healthy food. Yeah. And there's way more of that in this country than oh, I know. In my well, little area bubble. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I grew up in South Dakota, very Midwestern, you know, family. Uh, vegetables came out of a can. You know, the idea of my mom, like, steaming broccoli or, you know, even I didn't eat asparagus until I met my husband. Mm. But, I mean, there were so many foods that I just didn't eat that I've learned to love, that I really love. They're fabulous foods, but they just weren't part of what we had, right? Meat and potatoes, that was kind of a staple, right? And yeah. maybe a can of peas or a can of corn or... Yeah, corn and peas are the only vegetables for us growing up in that part of the, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Corn and peas. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think you can, so, I mean, if we were to sum up this conversation and we've covered so many areas, I, I, it seems like it's really about learning to love yourself initially, Mm -hmm. understanding that you are a divine being, having a human experience in this body for a short time. Yeah loving the body you have, regardless of how it looks, loving it before a single thing changes. Function over form. So that function over form. Function of our bodies over the form. Yeah. And you know, we often are often people in our culture that are highlighted for having disabilities. And you know, we see like the para Olympics and those kind of things. And people are just their hearts are just like so moved. Like, God, how come that person that's not even able-bodied is so committed to their health and well-being? Mm-hmm. And people's like, and, uh, you know, it just goes to show that caring for the body has nothing to do with the function. Nothing. No. Nothing. Right. So, because, there, you know, there's the people that you see the video. There's this, I used to hire motivational speakers. And one of the motivational speakers that I hired, he had no arms, no legs, he had no body. And the guy was like married with kids. So he did not see himself as a body for sure. He right. just like let it all like, you know, so we are not our bodies, but right. while we're in a body, while we are in a body, pr- appreciating what we do have over what it looks like mm-hmm. is really essential, I think. And doesn't mean that, you know, like I care about how my body looks because in this ego form, I am an image type and I do want to take care of myself, but that doesn't mean that I don't care about my heart. And I care about, you know, like I care about my insides too. So I do want to bring up a concept though, before we, sure. yeah, please. really important that I, that I just learned this, like a few people were writing in my Facebook group about self-love versus self-care. Well, it's so obvious to me, but people just don't understand the difference. And there is a big difference and that one feeds the other, but they're not the same. And the care part is like, you know, getting rest, drinking water, what you're eating, exercise, all of that is part of self-care. And I think people think, well, if, I sell, if I'm doing self-care, then I'm self-loving. Not necessarily. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I think self-love is primary. And it, it's like, well, how do I know if I'm self-loving? And 
I just, this is just a formula that I've always used. Like, are the thoughts towards myself more kind and loving half the time? Just let's just come up with that arbitrary number of 50% than they are. But if it's always chronic and constant, like, you know, you're such a worthless piece of crap or you'll never be good enough or you're, you know, you're so fat, you're so ugly, you're so dumb, all those horrible things that people say to themselves. If that's the dominant voice, then we know that really there could be an improvement with self-love. So it's hard to get to self-care, which is I want to take care of my body when I've got chronically negative thoughts and not self-loving thoughts to myself. So I always say to my students, start with self-love. Let's just begin there. How you talk to yourself how you hold boundaries, how you create relationships with people that nurture you versus having relationships with people that you want to impress or prove that you're okay to. There's all kinds of elements that are involved with self-love, but self-love is primary and then you get to self-care. But don't try to start with self-care. I'm just going to go on a diet and exercise, but I'm going to hate my way through it, hate myself through it because it just doesn't work that way. Uh Well, and that's in your book, you make it very clear that unless our mindset changes, our heart changes, then any of the things that we do won't be sustainable. Right. You know, it's like the person who wins the lottery, but doesn't change the mindset that they are now wealthy. It's not sustainable. It's a B times do equals half. You have to start with who you are. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because a person that has scarcity consciousness, you always hear the stories about the people that Win the lottery, lose the money. Very right. right. Nothing to do with the, the money. It has to do with their mindset. Right. That's and so, I if, think we, yeah, I think we talked about Lady Gaga like wow. once. Like Lady Gaga taught herself how to be a celebrity before she became a celebrity. And while she's had challenges, and we've sh- has shown the world how vulnerable she is, she taught herself like this is what I need to do in order to be a celebrity. I need to be in this mindset. I, yeah. I, I really, really respect how she studied celebrity. Right. Well, and Oprah Winfrey too, you know? I mean, look at Oprah's life. I mean, she was Af- she's African-American. She was overweight, you know, and she became this huge success because she always knew she was powerful. She knew that there was something bigger in herself, mm-hmm. right? And so that was that belief in herself is what, you know, created the trajectory for her to be where she is. Yep. And she teaches other people that, which is beautiful. So before we uh, close, would you please uh, let people know, um, give them the title of the book, where they can find the book and how they could reach out to you if they were interested in knowing more. Oh, thank you, Jerome. So the book is Skinny Fat Perfect. Love Who You See in the Mirror is the subtitle. And it's on Amazon. I think Barnes and Noble, Amazon, but Amazon is where most people buy it. Skinny Fat Perfect, love who you see in the mirror. And then my website is skinnyfatperfect.com. And there's actually a free tool on the website for anyone to go and get themselves. And um, yeah, that's where anybody would get a hold of me. And I'm just so grateful to you, Jerome, for Uh taking the time and caring about yourself enough to get the book, to read it twice. Like I just really, really value Uh, you in more ways than one. (laughs) Hey, that goes double for me. Before we end, we mentioned Oprah. 
Oprah often on her Super Soul Sunday gives people these questions. So I'm going to give them to you. Okay. Lightning round. The world needs what? More love. I believe in? Love. Love is? <laughs> love is the um, answer to everything. I'm grateful for? My wife. God is? Love. <laughs> what is the soul? The soul is, is truth. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you, Laura, so much for being here. Thank you for being the light in the world, being a, for being a teacher of God and for being my friends. I mm-hmm. love you more than I can say. Thank you. Thank and you. Um, yeah, so... Listeners, thank you for being here. If you uh, uh, want to reach out to me, you can do so at manifestingbrilliance at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on any of the platforms that you love, uh, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, audible.com, wherever you're finding this podcast, please take a moment to uh, review the podcast, give us a rating, and be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, Let's do something today to celebrate our bodies and the, the joy they bring us and their, their function. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.